Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. This is Valerie Koo, and I'm very excited to bring you the next instalment of Murder and Mayhem, the pop-up podcast that's going to help you spend 31 days with some of the world's best crime and thriller authors. And this is where you get to find out what really goes on in the minds of people who bring you such dark tales and stories. But if you're a bit old school and you want a summarized ebook version, then you can also find the ebook, A Month of Murder and Mayhem where you get to peek into, you know, the top tips from these authors and you can get that at murdercourse.com. Now, these interviews originally appeared in our other podcast at the Australian Writer Centre called So You Want to Be a Writer. Now, that's where we feature writers from all genres, you know, not just crime, but we've got, you know, from romance to crime to nonfiction to fantasy to all sorts of different genres and much more. But for Crime and Thriller Month, we wanted to curate only the crime and thriller authors so that you could discover them all under one roof. So this episode, we've got publishing phenomenon, Matthew Riley. Now, he's really well known for his action thriller novels that are sold all over the world. His very first book, which was called Contest, back in 1996, was really a self-publishing fairy tale. Because after being knocked back by every major publisher, he produced a thousand copies. He printed them himself and he distributed them in all the bookshops. Well, not all the bookshops, but lots of bookshops. And eventually, someone from Payne Macmillan noticed the book and offered him a publishing deal. So, his first book with Payne Macmillan was then Ice Station, and then they republished Contest, and then Temple, and many other books. He's had 
now over oh, 7.5 million copies of his books sold all over the world, with the most recent ones being Troll Mountain and The Great Zoo of China. Now, in this podcast, Matthew is interviewed by fellow author Jeff Bartlett. Jeff interviewed Matthew shortly after he released his book, The Five Greatest Warriors. Let's listen to Matthew. Matthew Riley, welcome to the Sydney Writers' Centre. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Now, you're the author of nine books, I take it. Yes, yes. The latest one is? Uh, the Five Greatest Warriors. Okay. came out last year and I'm halfway through a new Scarecrow book now. Oh, Scarecrow. So the fans of previous books have got something to look forward to. He, um, I, haven't, I haven't brought Scarecrow out for a while. Okay. Ghost Station Area 7 and Scarecrow. Yep. And a little side one, Hell Island. But um, having done my Jack West stuff with some yes. ancient history and adventure, I thought I'd see where Scarecrow's been. Fantastic. So that's going to be hitting the streets when? That'll be Christmas 2011. Okay. Uh, I do one book every two years now. Okay. Um, is that your own decision? Yes. Okay. When you're starting out, it is important to have sort of a book a year that bookstores, yeah. you know, get used to you and, and know who you are and recognise the names of Matthew Riley. Mm-hmm. But after a time, I found that was unsustainable. I couldn't finish one book, do the promotional work, and then start another one straight away. I needed time. And that's one of the joys of the success I've had. Yeah. The, the more success you have, the more time you have to come up with better ideas. Because the ideas are better, you have more success. So that becomes a virtuous circle. How does it break down for you now? What sort of percentage of time is there in structuring, in writing, and then in promotion? Is it pretty much a three-way split? Uh, no, no. Um, probably... Research takes about two or three months. Uh, also plotting out the story. I don't start a book until I know the whole story from, from the get-go. So I won't start page one, so I know what happens at page 401. About eight months of writing, getting it out of my head and onto the page. That's just the first draft? Just the first draft. Okay. Then it's five months of rewriting. Okay. The Five Greatest Warriors is a good example. Uh, the Five Greatest Warriors followed on from The Six Sacred Stones. It was a direct sequel. So page one of that book followed straight on from the end of Six Sacred Stones. Okay. And I was corralling together a whole bunch of subplots. Mm-hmm. And so The Five Greatest Warriors, more than any of the other books, required a full five months of revise, revise, and revise again. Because when the reader read it, it had to be completely seamless. Um, so yeah, at the moment it's three months... Research, eight months writing, five months revision, and then I rest and stop. And then when the publicity promotional Kicks obligations in. kick in, it's probably two months there. My books come out in about October, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll tour from sort of October to early December. And when you were writing Six Sacred Stones, did you have already premeditated the idea that there was going to be the Five Greatest Warriors as a follow-up to it? Yes. Okay. It was the only book that I've done where I knew the story was too big for one book. Mm-hmm. So I planned out even the point where the book ended, which was the ultimate cliffhanger. I had my hero falling down this sort of bottomless abyss. Yep. Uh, that was fully planned. The hard part with that was that the biggest fans of my books had to wait two full years till the Five Greatest Warriors came out, whereas all the Johnny Come Lately's can now read Six Sacred Stones and just go and get Five Warriors and it flows straight Exactly. On. The early adopters put in the hard yards and weren't rewarded. When they come to signings, I actually apologise. I say, I'm really sorry. You waited two years. I'm really sorry. And God love them. They go, hey, 
I got into the spirit of it. I understood, you know. Matthew Riley is known for, for cliffhangers. This was just a really, really big cliffhanger. So, the first draft, um, it finishes up at 400 pages, but how big is the original first draft? Do you literally dump everything in your brain onto the page? Yeah, usually my first drafts are about 20, 25 pages longer than the finished product. Is that all? Yeah. Okay. I, I'm, a, I'm a planner. Okay. I, I do plan out, and one of the things I've... I never expected to write hmm. nine books. Yeah. Uh, I thought maybe in my life I would write five or six. Mm-hmm. But the more you write, the more practice you have, the better you get. And so I've, I've learned now as I go to generally get rid of stuff which I am fairly sure is not going to sort of lead down a new subplot. Okay. And so, yeah, for a 400-page book, I might do 425, and when I do the revisions, I am utterly ruthless. If, if a sentence does not advance the plot or some character, cut it. And that's where it trims back down um, after the first draft. Because traditionally, when people do a first draft, if they're writing a 300-page book, traditionally the first draft is somewhere between 450 and 600 pages because I'm not quite sure what should be in this book and what might be a book in its own right. But I'll keep that and use it at a later time sort of thing. So you're... Right? Yeah. So, um, again, you've only got your own experiences to come from. Had you... This is where I wanted to come in. Um, we teach the how to get your book published and also how to self-publish yes. at uh, Sydney Writers' Centre. So what we wanted to learn was more of your experience as because you started out as self-publish. the self-publishing. Yeah. So did you have anybody as a role model when you were starting out as far as saying how long your first draft should be? Not a one. <laughs> I, and it's funny because I have sort of come into not only the Australian publishing world but the international publishing world sort of com- from completely out of left field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't hang out with writers I do not know, published writers, I do not know anybody in the industry. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason I self-published was because I did not know anybody. Mm-hmm. And it, it galls me a little bit when I go to writers' festivals now and I, they ask an author, how did you get published? And say, oh, well, my friend was an author or my cousin was a, an editor. And those are golden contacts. And if you have those contacts, use them. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote contests sent it to all the publishers here in Sydney mm-hmm. and was rejected by all of them, okay. uh, including famously getting a uh, photocopy rejection letter ah. with a photocopied signature. Mm-hmm. So I self-published Contest with the sole goal of getting spotted okay. by a publisher. Was that a big decision for you as far as saying, well, nobody feels there's the potential, the professionals don't feel that there is going to be a market for this book? Were you at some stage thinking, well, maybe they're right, I shouldn't? You know, for about four seconds, Okay. I thought, yeah, they're professionals, but they're wrong. Okay. I know better than they do. And I honestly thought, and I, I'm serious, I honestly thought Contest had the goods. I thought this book was faster, scarier, and more thrilling than the books I was reading. And I, I was a big thriller reader, and still am. So you're a big fan of the genre? Yeah. Okay. I am the kind of guy who would go out and buy a Matthew Riley book. Mm-hmm. And so... and. I'm often asked by people, do I see lots of movies, read lots of books? Yes. Mm-hmm. I even go and see the bad movies. Okay. Because I want to know what people are trying, what stories are out there, um, maybe measuring the zeitgeist, but yeah. I want to know that my books are at the cutting edge of whatever is happening in the thriller genre. Mm-hmm. So I need to be faster, I need my information and my plots and my twists mm-hmm. to be better than everything that's out there. And I thought, contest was an innovation and 
He just hadn't been seen by the right person. That's why I self-published. So what was the process from the decision, okay, I'm going to self-publish, you knew virtually nothing about the whole process, I imagine? Um, no. Uh, my brother, Stephen, knocked me out. Okay. Uh, he investigated uh, boutique or sort of corporate publishing firms. Yep. And he found one in the rocks. It's called, it was a desktop publishing mm-hmm. company. And they did brochures for company, for corporations. Yep. And what they, they said is they quoted us a price. They would, for $8,000, yep. they would do 1,000 books. Okay. But the, the costs were... Um, you know, if you did 500 books, then it was like 7,500, so you might yes. as well go to 8,000. Yeah. Um, but they would do no design at all. Uh, I even had to tell them what size a paperback book was. So I took a ruler out and measured my Michael Crichton paperback at yeah. Jurassic Park yeah. and said it's, it's, you know, it's 11 centimetres by 18 centimetres roughly. Designed the cover. Even in Microsoft Word, did the page typesetting. Okay. So if anybody finds an original copy of the contest, mm-hmm. they pop up on eBay for about $1,500. Oh, do they really? Occasionally you find them in a second-hand store for $2. Are there many in your garage? I have about 10. There you go. Uh, and occasionally I donate one to a, a charity auction. Um, but if you find one of those, mm-hmm. it was designed on Microsoft Word in my computer, and I just basically sent them the file. So they would print it, they would bind it, they would put the cover that I wanted on it, mm-hmm. And they'd give it to me. It's printed on new paper, yeah, because it was cheaper than recycled paper. Um, did you look at other publishers at that particular stage, or were they pretty much in the hands of your brother? And he said these are the best ones to go to. You know, it was my brother just happened to be working in the city at the times. Okay. <laughs> he did a little bit of scouting, and he said, yeah. "I think this one's the best one." Even though, by the sound of things, they'd never actually printed a book before. No. Okay. Ne- never done a book before. Okay. Uh, and I understand now, uh, you can do really, really short runs. Mm. Uh, small runs at McPherson's, who, who are the printing company who actually print my books for Pam McMillan. So, okay. And I, I know people who have got literally a single book done for like $13 or so. Wow. So, but again, the people I speak to who are self-publishers, uh, once the book has come out, they realise that actually getting it made was the easy part. Now they've got to try and get it into the hands of the public and at least get the public aware that there's this wonderful book out there. Yep, you, have, you end up with boxes of your own book yes. in your house. So you've got 8,000 copies, where were they? 1,000 copies. 8,000 bucks, yep. 1,000 copies. Uh, I had a little 1977 Toyota Celica. Yes. Bomb. And that's when you hit the road and you go to bookstores and you walk in with a copy of your book and you say, Hi, I'm Matthew Riley, this is my book. Would you like to put it on the shelf? So you were literally a door-to-door salesman? Yes. And... Some stores, uh, fortunately for me, there was a store in Chatswood called Read and Write, which is no longer in existence. Uh, but the manager there uh, obviously took a shine to me. Mm. And she took me to the back room and said, okay, now this is consignment, now this is sale or return, now this is, these are the terms of yes. sale, uh, which I'm sure is what you teach yes. people who come here. Uh, but that's, that's where I got my education. Okay. Um, and yes, I went to, I went to stores and... The, the responses range from, hey, you've got a little bit of good on you, you know, I'll put your book on the shelf and we'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, to the others who just say, no, we don't take self-published orders. So you've got to be prepared for someone to completely slam the door in your face. Yeah. Um, when you self-publish and you tell your friends, you know, this is my book, they go, who's your publisher? I published it myself. They almost all go, oh, and it's, oh you must suck. So there's that stigma between, well, if nobody's picked you up, who does this for a living? That's right. Yeah, it's more of a hobby. That, that, that's all vanity. Oh, all it's yeah. vanity. And you just have to, again, you, 
developed a bit of a thick armour mm-hmm. and say, well, I've got a goal and my goal is to get this book out there because my goal is to entertain people. I thought this book would entertain people like me. So I need to get it into their hands and the way to do that is to get it into bookstores. And the big store that, um, that made the difference was the Angus and Robertson on Pitt Street in yes. the city. Again, I went in, spoke to the manager. He gave a couple of copies to some staff members who enjoyed that kind of book. And he said, listen, I'll give it to them and see what they think. They liked it, so we took some copies. And when they sold, he took more and put it in front of the store. And that's where it was found by the commissioning editor of fiction from Macmillan, Ed Patterson, who, like a good publisher, was going to stores to see what the competition was doing, to see what was out. And she bought it, read it, rang up the number on the copyright page, which is still my parents' home phone number, and she asked to speak to me. And importantly, she said, what else are you working on? Okay. I don't want an author who just writes one book. Yes. I'm someone who writes two or three or four books. And I just started isolation. Because it's all about the brand. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not quite all about the brand. And I'm saying that as a guy who you know, has my name in large letters now on the cover of the book. So now it is about the brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a little bit about the business mm-hmm. that publishers are companies that need to make a profit, you know, at the end of the year. And they need to find these authors who can reach the audience. And so I think they need to know that if you write one book that was pretty good, the audience will want the next one and the next one. So it becomes a brand. But at first it's about the art and the commerce, then it becomes the brand. So you were getting reasonably good success when you were self-publishing with your first book. I reckon about two-thirds of stores took it, okay. one-third slammed the door in my face. Was it then a big decision as far as when you were going to decide if you went with a publisher? Did you sit down and think, well, self-publishing seems to be working, I make more money doing it this way, as opposed to a publisher? Uh, on my model, I couldn't make money. Really? Uh, it cost me $8 a book, yep. and at that time, a paperback book was selling for $16 at the store, Wow. so okay. the store would... The store would give me eight dollars to take the book, and, and they got fifty percent themselves. So I couldn't. If I sold them individually, and I worked in a bar, so I, I sold some out of the box yeah. in a bar. So I guess I got eight bucks a book on those. My in the end, my sales would have only been Sydney based because it was just me and yeah. my car and the radius that I could do in my car. Yeah. I did take some books to Canberra, okay. and my car got broken into. Really? And so some. Some guy in Canberra's got 35 copies of Contest, which he may not know worth 1500 bucks a copy now. But in the end, I wanted distribution around Australia yep. and around the world. Okay. And so when the letter, when the call came from Macmillan and then ultimately the letter to publish, um, I was open there because I felt their distribution power was what I wanted. How long had the book been out there before she approached you? Uh, probably about... Four months. Okay. And did she ask you how many copies have been sold, that sort of thing? Or she just purely liked the concept of the book? Uh, she liked the concept of the book. I think she was a little surprised when she found out it was self-published. Okay. The, the quality of contest, I should have brought one in with me, it was it was good quality. And I I do believe, not only in my writing, mm. uh, in the concept of verisimilitude, mm. that not only should I make the book seem as real as possible in the story, when self-publishing contest, that little book, it had a little fake publisher's logo on the spine, which, right. was, just, which was just a K. Yeah. Um, but if you have a self-published book, and I'm sure you tell it to your students all the time, if you've got no logo on the spine, it doesn't look real. Mm. The verisimilitude is lost. 
and the public can spot that. They don't know why that book doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have a publisher's imprint on the spine, mm-hmm. it's like, open it up. You need to sort of match the title page mm-hmm. and copyright page conventions of books published by major publishers. Otherwise, the public will just think, there's something wrong with this. Mm-hmm. So contest, it even, um, so it's a, to use a word I don't like, the sort of convinced someone in the industry that it was a real major published book. And was the publisher one of the publishers that had rejected you previously? Yes. Was it the same person? You don't have to answer this question that you're on. No, it didn't, it didn't get to her, but I give her grief about this all the time. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Do you still have a copy of her letter? Yes. Oh, oh hell yeah. Mm. I still have a copy of all the rejection letters. I was going to say, is there some kind of... Um, feeling deep with inside you where you'd like to actually call some of the editors if they actually poach you and say, we'd love to be your publisher now? A- a- actually, no. Okay. No. Um, I-, I don't hold any sort of uh, dreams or daydreams of, of vengeance. Or, okay. um, uh, publishers do receive a lot of manuscripts every week, every month. Mm. Uh, I knew I was sending it in cold. Um, but that said, keep every, keep every rejection letter. Uh, you know, as they say, you know, wallpaper the uh, the outhouse wall with them. Mm-hmm. Keep them, let them fire you up. But the, the letter that I got, the offer of publication, was the single greatest letter I received in my life. You've obviously been doing this for how many years now? Uh, I self-published Contest in late 96. Okay, My station came out in late 98. Okay. Uh, so so we're years. Fantastic. So what would you like to tell Matt Riley back in 96, who's just starting out, if you know now what you know about publishing, self-publishing the industry, etc., um, we get a lot of people who come to Sydney Writers' Centre basically saying, I've got a great concept for a book, I've worked for six months to three years putting the manuscript on paper, I really would like advice from somebody who's done it as far as what's the next step and how I don't waste time. Yeah. Um, if I had my time again, I would have gone to more agents. Uh, agents have the superhighway broadband connection to publishers. Mm-hmm. So if you want to save time, send your manuscript out to agents. Mm-hmm. Um, I would even say send it to agents in London and New York. Okay. Uh, because there are, there's a certain amount of agents here in Australia. Mm. There are lots in London and New York, and publishing's become very global. And with the internet as well, you can send the first few chapters of the PDF. It's not even going to cost you that postage. Yeah. Uh, so if I could tell myself, if I could talk to myself back in '96, I would say more agents. Mm-hmm. I did send a contest to one literary agency here in Sydney, and if there is a tinge of um, bitterness in me, it's to them. They lost the manuscript. Wow. I sent it to them. I waited a little amount of time. I called up to chase it up and said, "What did you think?" Oh, where did that go? We, oh, I'm sorry, we can't find that. And so I swore then. I would not send it to any more agents. So I sent contest to one agency, they lost it, I didn't send it to any others. That said, I, I'm so pleased that I self-published. And as a published author, and an author who's published by major publishers around the world, Simon Schuster in the States, Orion in the UK, Miller here, you'd be amazed when you do promotional work, having this story to tell, because people say, well, the way you got started, Matthew, is really unusual. And so I have this little story to tell, which is not related to the content of the mm. books. I'm not going on a radio station and saying, 
well, my new book is this big action-packed story about so-and-so. And so tell us about how you got started, because it's an unusual story, and it's now sort of part of the brand. Matthew Riley, yeah. he's this guy that's done. Pete Patterson goes to the Frankfurt Book Fair and gets publishers from other countries say to her, you're Kate Patterson. You're the one who found Matthew Riley in a bookstore. And they just get blown away. So, yes, I wish I'd done some things differently, but in another way, this is the path I've gone down and it's created this, it's a story I can tell over and over again. People love it. So I don't think I'd do it differently. But that's what I tell myself. Go to more agents. Um, so you're dealing with publishers now. So when you were originally writing, you had the freedom to put whatever you wanted in the book. Yes. Now that you're working with a publisher, has the process changed at all? Is there a lot of feedback from them as far as the structure or the general nature or the genre of the book? Uh, actually, I get pretty much free reign. And to the point where I, I don't even send them a synopsis of what I'm going to write about. Wow. That I get, I, I basically, I told Macmillan, I said, hey, they, they said, what are, you, what are you going to write about? And I said, oh, I'm going to do a new Scarecrow book. And maybe that's enough when it's a sequel to a series of very successful books. Um, when I went into the Jack West books, Seven Wonders, Six Stones, Five Warriors, uh, I, I, I said to them, listen, I'm going to do something which is going to be action-packed and thrilling. But it's going to be more Indiana Jones, going after ancient artefacts, booby-trapped places. And they go, okay, cool. Um, going right back to the start, when, when Ice Station, when, when Macmillan picked up Ice Station, you have to give them great credit for, for picking up that book. The original title I had, which I can't believe it was, was called Starfighter, which is woefully sci-fi for a book which is not sci-fi, and of course we changed the title to, to Ice Station later on. But Whose idea was that? Uh, that was Macmillan's, that okay. was Kate Patterson and James Fraser. Came up with, they said, why don't you call it the ice station? And I said, well, let's take away the the ice station word for me. Um, and you have to be, as an author, you have to be open to suggestions from your publisher. Uh, yes, they rejected contest, but they are still good at what they do for a reason. What most impressed me with ice station, though, was that Macmillan had never published a thriller like this before. They, they sort of said, we. We don't know what this is, but we really like it, and it's new. And so when iStation was being edited, I was often educating my editor. Okay. They said, oh, what about this? I said, no, no, this is, this is a, something that thriller readers will, will be okay with. So, oh, okay. So in a way, I was... So to their credit, it was almost like Warner Brothers making the movie The Matrix. Wow. We don't quite understand this, but it looks good. And so from there, they have trusted me to know my genre. I have heard stories of especially children's authors who get weighed on not to use so much foul language, um, but I've never had any intrusion into plot, language, violence, and my stories have a lot of plot, a lot of foul language, and a lot of violence. You said that you first started writing contests purely because it was a book that you wanted to read yourself. Yes. Um, have you a better idea of who your readers are now, and when you're putting a book together, are you specifically writing with them in mind? Has it changed over the years? Actually, no. It's, I still write for myself. Okay. And the, the change that has come about is that I am acutely aware, year in, year after year, that the audience is getting more sophisticated. That in the two years between my books, the audience has watched several dozen movies. They're getting 
TV shows now, like House, CSI, which are filled with plot, filled with twists, and exceptional filmmaking. And so they've watched two years' worth of that. So my twists have to be better. My, my plots have to be better. I think a single episode of House is one of my favourite shows. It's got more plot and character than most movies. You pay 17 bucks to go and see. And so not only am I writing for myself, but I'm writing for myself as the thriller reader who is now getting smarter and smarter and more sophisticated. And I have to get cleverer. So the twists and the plot density of, say, the Five Greatest Warriors, I think are more complicated than Ice Station, which came out in 1998, because the audience can now grasp uh, plots and twists so much faster. Looking at the current set of works that you've got, going back to the first book, do you wish you had a chance to rewrite it all? Do you look at the early Matt Riley stuff and think, hmm, nice first attempt, but I've learned so much over the last 12 years? Not for a second. Okay. One of, one of my great skills, I think, is my ability to be satisfied with something and then move on. And, and it's a skill that I think as a professional writer you have to develop. If you're, if you're walking along with a bag of regrets, yeah, it's a tough life. So for a lot of first writers, that's one of their... Um, greatest decisions to make. I've worked on this for two years or something like that. I think it's finished, but I'm not sure. It's very hard for people, for their first book, to walk away and say, okay, it's done, I'm not going to change anything else now, it's completed. Was that a difficult process for you for content? Publishing a book, it's it's a really weird thing. Because to write a book, you have to spend a lot of time by yourself. Quite an introverted activity. And then you put your name on the front cover of a book, and you put it out there to be bought, evaluated, reviewed, or worse, ignored. And to my mind, a lot of people who write a book, they're the first part of that. They're quite introverted. They've spent a lot of time, and so, yes, it can be a bit of a warm blanket to say, oh, I'll just revise it one more time, I'll revise it one more time. Because to take that step to the extroverted side of it, of putting your name on a book, and literally sticking your neck out there. Uh, that's a big step. So I do understand that there are people who basically are trying to procrastinate and put off taking that step. At some point you have to say, this is the best I can do. Put it out there. Um, and yes, you need a bit of a brass neck. I've had reviewers say that Scarecrow had less literary merit than a shopping dog. Um, I get people on Amazon.com who hate my guts. It's going to happen. But you also get those wonderful emails from people who say, I've never read a full book before, but then I read Ice Station or Hell Island, and now I read all sorts of books. So um, if you can get past the introverted state and get to the extroverted state, um, that's, that's a big step. Um, but basically, be happy with what you... Or get to a point where you're satisfied that you've done the best thing you can do, and then put it out there. And then maybe start thinking about the next idea. What's the general advice you can give to people who are considering writing? As, I mean, I suppose I didn't really want to go into this and it can be difficult to answer, but how much of what you do, how much of writing is a trade that you can learn through spending eight hours a day at the computer and just putting your thoughts on paper and how much is actually required skill? Is that something you can actually break down? It's very hard to break it down. Uh, I, I actually think that it all starts from one first step. And it was actually, I, I found it quite independently in Stephen King's book on writing, which was where he wrote, 
At some point in their career, every writer looks at the books they're reading and says, I can do better than that. And so whether, I don't know if you can write yourself into skill um, just through sheer hours and hours and hours of doing it. Uh, I do think that I certainly looked at the books I was reading and I said, I'm a bit of an expert in this. I, I, I've read, you know, dozens and dozens of action thrillers and I reckon I can do it better. All it takes is the ability to look at what you've been reading and to say, you know, this can evolve. And I will always look at what I'm writing and say, have I ever read, have I read anything like this before? And I've watched a lot of movies. I've read a lot of books. If I'm writing something, I go, you know, it sort of was in Predator 2. I'll go, okay, can't write it. But if I'm writing something, usually it's always the case now, I'm writing something, I've never seen this any movie or any book. That means I'm in uncharted territory, so I'm doing something right. So I don't know. Yes, practice helps, but the first step is knowing your genre and saying I can be better than that. And that applies to thrillers for me, romance novels, literary fiction, non-fiction, biography. It's looking at what you're reading and saying, you know, I can do that and I can do it better. Writing is a, a solitary existence, but at the same time, were you taking advantage of getting feedback from somebody? Was there somebody who was reading the chapters as you were doing them? Or at what stage in your process do you like to start getting feedback on a book? Uh, my wife reads my books in 150-page chunks. So she might read the first third, then she'll wait a few months, read the middle third, then wait a few months, and then she'll read the last third. Is she a fan of the genre before you came along? You know, she wasn't a particular fan of thrillers. She was just a reader. Um, but she knows what she likes, and my books are designed to sort of hook you in from the first line. So I hooked her in from the start with Contest, and she wants to keep reading. Uh, I still have, when I've finished the book, and when I'm just about to send it to my publisher, I send it to a, a good friend of mine, a mate of mine since high school, and he's not, he, he works in building industry. He's not into, he's not a, a writer, he's not an editor, he, he's just a genuine airport guy would go through the airport and buy a paperback book on the way. I send him the manuscript and I say, tell me what you think. And so far he comes back and goes, that was great. And so I'm not looking for erudite literary criticism from him. I just want to know if he's having a good time. And the only thing I ask him and my wife is does it slow down at any point? And at one point in ice station, uh, my wife said, oh, you know, at around page 160 to 180, I felt it slowed down. And so I went straight to those pages and just went cut, 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 cut. And so when the general public got ice station, there was no slowing down. But there, there, What sort of feedback did she give you that you found really helpful? It was the slowing down. Okay. When, when she, that was the only, the main bit where she said, it was just this point that I felt it slowed down. Uh, there was a, once in six second stones as well. Um, she said there was one point where she felt slowed down. That's all I want to know because when I want readers to pick up these books, I want to go. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, um, oh, sometimes I guess my wife would say, "What are the characters feeling at this point?" Because I will often be going helter skelter with the action and the plot, and she'll say, "I wanted to know what X was feeling," and that's a good reminder. Typically in that genre, there isn't a lot of what you would call character development. We know who the James Bond-style character is at the beginning. He takes on the villain, vanquishes him in a major sort of way that involves time travel and 
like you travel and all this sort of thing, and is unchanged at the end but has a girlfriend. Um, to that extent, um, the genre doesn't really invite a lot of character. It's more sort of about plot structure, plot structure, action in between. Um, is that a concern for you? Do you feel that you're neglecting the character side of things? No, but this is where I think I build a better mousetrap. I am inserting character into things, and one of the key problems, especially with the sequel, and I'm a student of sequels. I, I look at movies. Why Lethal Weapon 2 is a good sequel. Why Speed 2 is a bad sequel. Um, and Lethal Weapon 2 is a good sequel because it advanced the characters of the lead characters. But with any sequel, the danger is the hero is probably going to survive because James Bond will live to fight another day. How do you keep the reader on the edge of their seat and thinking that the hero may not? In Scarecrow, I actually killed off uh, a much-loved uh, major character. Uh, it wasn't the hero, it was a much-loved major character. I get hate mail for that book. And the reason I accept the hate mail for what it is is that I generated such an emotional attachment to that character that people cried and people got upset. But by killing off that character, in all future books, people go, well, remember what Matthew Riley did in Scarecrow? He was so horrible, no character is safe. Plus, the effects of that character's death on the hero transformed his character. So, um, in a thriller, you need character. If you don't have characters that people love and want to know... And engage with. And engage with then you're not going to be thrilled when they're in danger. So in actual fact, um, I think it's a tough call when people say that there's little character development in thrillers because I think it's very subtle. But there is character development because you care about them. And I put a lot of time into that. That's a lot in the revision. I'm inserting more character. Where can I put more character? Where can I get more interest so that the readers care about these characters? And a lot of that's in the revising. Your new book is your 10th, I take it? Yes. Um... Is there still the same passion for you writing number 10 as there is for writing number 1, or is it starting to feel like it's, oh, 9 to 5 at the computer? You know, the, the passion is still there. The hard part is that I get the idea, as I said before, I map out the whole book in my head. And so I map out 400 pages, jam-packed story, it's in my head. But writing it still takes me eight months. And so that's the heart. I wish I could develop a machine where I could just zap it from my brain and have, you know, printed text straight away. The heart, the, the only thing that um, tries me now is just forcing myself to sit down for three, four, five hours on a given day and just type out the idea. Because the ideas are fully formed. So the passion is still there, but it's just the physical getting it out of here on the page. That's the hard part now, because the ideas are really important. So brain transfer or character recognition software. Yes. Sounds like the sort of thing you might read about in a Matthew Riley novel. <laughs> it is, um, but I guess, the, I guess the funny thing is, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. Mm. And the, the biggest question I get asked, apart from where do you get your ideas from, is how do you maintain this one? How do you sit down and write for these periods of time? And it's actually it's the passion which drives me to sit down and do the typing. So um, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. It's hard. It takes a long time of solitary work. Um, yeah. Now, I station the entire 
background for that, you said you did research in your local library yeah. to pretty much create a realistic um, environment for the readers to go into. Um, how credible do your plots have to be? Do you find that you've got a mixture somewhere between reality and sci-fi? Uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good description. Uh, my, my books are often, there's the hint of sci-fi. So Ice Station had the hint of sci-fi, the discovery of what appears to be a spaceship buried in the ice in Antarctica, which turns out not to be. To the full-on sci-fi, I mean, Contest and Hover Car Racer are overt science fiction. Contest has aliens, Hover Car Racer is set in the, in the near future. But the, the thrillers always have the hint of sci-fi, and that's more just, that's the story I like. I, I like Raiders of the Lost Ark is a very influential film on me. And while it has all this very realistic although outrageous action in it where it you know, goes under the truck, that sort of thing. still has that element of sort of paranormal sci-fi in the, the Ark of the Covenant ultimately shoots out yeah. flames and kills people. Um, but you, no matter how outrageous you get, and my books, I think, are... They're in the James Bond level of outrageousness. You know, people jump off moving vehicles, you know, grab onto moving planes. They're, you know, it's big action, the kind you'd expect in Bruce Willis yes. movie. But it has to be grounded in some sort of reality. And yeah, Ice Station. I, I researched Ice Station in, in Willoughby Library, uh, which, through sheer good fortune, had the most incredible Antarctic section. And so all the stuff about Antarctica in Ice Station, the ice stations that flood out to sea, ice moving out from the poles, um, the inability of, of helicopters to fly in the, in the extreme cold air, all came from non-fiction books I found in Willoughby Library. And I've spoken, I've done speeches at Willoughby Library, and I've done speeches around libraries around Australia. And I say, I researched Ice Station in a local library just like this, and the, the people in the audience, many of whom are aspiring writers, look around and go, you can write an international best-selling book starting here. And that's where it's, nobody's born a best-selling author. I get invited to army bases now. Mm -hmm. But when you're a, you're alone at home in a room writing that first book, nobody's born a best-selling author. Nobody's born with access. You have to go and find it out. So again, that's probably a good point to finish up on. Um, for the courses that we teach here, for people who are self-publishing, for people who want to get a book published, mm -hmm. What's the key advice that you can give them? Obviously, it's something that can feel fairly daunting. Um, what's words of reassurance and what ways to help them along with their dream can you give them? The, the first and most uh, compelling thing I would say is write the kind of book that you like to read yourself. Uh, you will not see the Matthew Riley book of poetry anytime soon. You will not see me writing a romance novel. And there's a reason for that. Readers of poetry and romance novels will spot me as a fake in a second. Likewise, don't write thrillers if you think, oh, thriller writers make money. You know, I'll write a thriller. Thriller readers will spot you as a fake in a second. If you write what you love, and as I said before, try to write a book which is better than the stuff you're reading, then you'll be building on this knowledge that you've had from reading and enjoying these books. So if romance is the kind of book you like, then that's the kind of book I think you should write. If poetry is what you like, then that's what you should write. If thrillers are what you like, then that's what you should write. And from there, the passion is already there. And it's the passion 
which drives me to sit down and spend those thousands of hours writing the book, getting the idea out of the head onto the page. And so suddenly discipline isn't an issue. So if you write what you love and what you want to read yourself, the passion is there, the discipline will follow. I'd also say, it works for me, it doesn't work for everybody, get the end in your head before you start. Because it's like planning a trip. If you're going to drive from Sydney to Canberra, you just need to know that you have to get onto the, you know, the M5, then get onto the Hume Highway, and eventually you'll get to Canberra. That's the way I write my books. I have my starting point, I have my finishing point, so when I sit down on a given day, and I'm going to go home from here today, I'm going to go and write this afternoon. All I have to do is make sure I'm moving myself a short distance towards the finish. So, write what you love, passion and discipline will follow, maybe get the end in your head before you start. And again, discipline is a key thing. Uh, for a lot of people, they've got the idea, they've got the passion, but life keeps getting in the way. Yes. So, it's very hard to devote two hours to uh, a day to writing your book. Were there any things that helped you as far as being able to go to it day after day after day? The main thing people say is, I'm halfway through it, but I just can't find the time to push it. You know, the thing to keep you going is to know that it'll take a long time. Uh, when I wrote Contest and Ice Station, and to a lesser extent Temple, uh, I was studying at university, and working in a bar, going to university, and what I would do is I would write on Thursday nights or Sunday afternoons or, or Saturday afternoons. And this friend of mine who, who reads books now, he was a very keen soccer player. He belonged to a district soccer club. Mm -hmm. And view it as a hobby. He went off and spent his Saturday afternoons playing soccer. I went off and wrote a book. And slowly and slowly, the pile of pages gets bigger. There's no time limit. There's no rule that a book has to be done in six months or 12 months. It can take as long as it takes, but if you make it a hobby, then you just find a little bit of time here and there to work on it. When you get a holiday, when I was on university holidays, I'd get like five days in a row that I could write, and that was just, that was a bonus. So if you view it as this thing you do for enjoyment, and I, I, I get a kick out of it, I think I get an endorphin rush doing it. If you view it that way, um, it becomes fun. Don't set yourself arbitrary time limits. It's, it's counterproductive. And is, just to finish, is calling yourself an author something that's good? Absolutely. And actually, I, I kicked myself from before. I used the phrase aspiring writer. Yeah. Um, you're a writer. You should not say aspiring. You should say, I, I, I'm a writer. Uh, and, and I am an author. Uh, and one of the good things to try uh, to really test your, your mettle, if you're heading overseas and it says on that outgoing passenger form, occupation, right, author. Do that. And if nothing else, customers will acknowledge that you're somebody successful who should be bumped up to business class. Exactly. And put it, it, it's a rare case where you have, to put it, you have to write it down and put it on a page. And the, fir the first step, and, and it's, a, it's a good point to finish on, the first step to becoming an international best-selling author is to have a dream. And you've got to think that it's possible first. These things rarely happen by accident. Uh, you have to have the dream. And so if the dream is to be an author, say it. Well, Matthew Rolling, you've lived that dream. You are now the best-selling Australian author of nine novels with another one to come. Thank you so much for your time and plenty more we can talk about, but we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and good luck to everybody with their writing. 
Well, that was Matthew Riley. Now, I remember the first time that I read a Matthew Riley book, and it was very early in his career, and it was Ice Station. And at the time, I didn't really know who Matthew Riley was, but obviously he's gone on to become a huge international success. But I remember reading Ice Station, and I was sitting in my apartment, and I started reading this book, and I wasn't quite sure what I was in for, but I could not stop reading. I couldn't put it down. And I remember reading it over the course of a day. I had to have um, lunch and and dinner. I remember making my lunch and dinner and eating with one hand and turning the pages of the book with the other. And I didn't go out because I was so engrossed in this book. Because Matthew is certainly a master at suspense and at pacing. You can learn a lot about pacing from Matthew because it's so important to make sure you're taking your readers on a journey that, you know, with the action thriller novel, you're, they're on the edge of their seat. You want them to be on the edge of their seat, but you also want them to enjoy the journey and to make sure that you are unfolding the right plot points at the right time. Now, some readers like a book that's a slow burn, but Others are, you know, like something that's a bit more fast-paced, like a Matthew Riley book. But I actually encourage you as writers and as readers to read both because you can learn so much from different types of books. Now, Matthew Riley has honed his craft over the years and he's an expert at it, but he still knows how to keep things fresh because he keeps up to date and he understands that his readers have become more sophisticated. So he's got to make sure that his writing is more sophisticated as well, or his stories are more sophisticated. One thing about Matthew Riley, if you have someone in your life who is not a reader and you want to try to get them into reading, particularly if they're a guy, give them a Matthew Riley book. I can't tell you the number of people who've told me that they just weren't readers before, but then they got into Matthew Riley and then read all of his books and then began reading other kinds of books. So, you know, Matthew Riley book is great entry book for someone who isn't a reader and who you want to discover. You want them to discover the joy of reading. So, there we go. Matthew Riley. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing. Students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au. 